Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you far and wide, listening from places like Flatbush, New York, Cleveland, Ohio, Lexington, Kentucky, Encinitas, California, Nansan, South Korea, Pilsen in the Czech Republic, Badalona, Spain, and Hatfield, England. Thanks for making the podcast a part of your day, and I especially want to say I appreciate all the loyal listeners out there who've never missed an episode. There's quite a few of you. And I'm sure you noticed it's been a while since the last episode, January 6th to be exact. Now, my goal has always been to bring you a new show every week, but lately I have to confess that I've had to juggle other things in my life, and I really had no choice but to take a break from the podcast and I think you'll understand. But it killed me because I love to do this, and I'm having the greatest time with it. But the good news is that going forward, I'm going to bring you at least two episodes a month, and the long-term goal is to return to a weekly schedule. And some great interviews are on the way, so I hope you like that news. Now, I have one favor to ask, and then we'll get on with the show. But here's my request for you. Today, I want you to share this podcast with one friend. Let's bring some new listeners on board. So I promise I'll keep bringing you the content, and I just need you to help grow the audience. All right. Well, today we're going to take a deep dive into one of the most admired names in sports cars, and the man behind it, Donald Healy. He lived an incredible life, and the things he accomplished from a little workshop in Warwickshire are impressive, even today. And he inspired such loyalty in his very small team of engineers and designers that many of them stayed with him for decades, even when their chance of success was slim and things looked hopeless. So, without further ado, I give you the Donald Healy story, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Let's hit it. Austin Healy is a name that might only be vaguely familiar if you're under 40 years old. But if you're a sports car fan, you deserve to know about the brief but important history of these dashing little British cars. Now, Austin Healy is just one nameplate in a succession of sporting cars that Donald built. And Healy is also one of the most hyphenated names in automotive history for that same reason, because he was a sort of maverick in the British motor industry who was constantly looking for partnerships with others to build the cars he envisioned. By the early 1950s, he'd found himself on the brink of his greatest success. Donald Healy was born in 1898 in a small town in the rugged and windblown reaches of Cornwall, which is a peninsula at the southwestern tip of England. It's a remote and hard scrabble land, and like other local boys, Healy might have grown up to become a miner, a fisherman, or a farmer, but his father ran a general store and did well enough to own a car as early as 1907. John Frederick Healy was among the first generation of automobile enthusiasts, and he passed that enthusiasm to his son. So Donald went on to study engineering, but he became restless, having to sit in a classroom. And then in 1914, his father was able to pay for an internship at the Sopwith Aviation Company, established just two years earlier by Thomas Sopwith, who was a well-to-do young Londoner just a year older than Healy. 
and he was a witness to some of the pioneering aviation efforts in England in the first few years after the Wright brothers had conquered the mystery of flight. So by 1910, Sopwith was a pilot himself, which meant that Healy had both a peer and a mentor in Sopwith. Now, his internship exposed Healy not just to manufacturing and engineering work and the process of innovation, but also to a group of dashing young sportsman types who lived in a world of discovery and high adventure. And he was also assigned to the Sopwith hangars at the Brooklyn's racing circuit, where flying machines and the latest high-performance motor cars captured his imagination. By 1912, the company had secured a contract to build airplanes for the war ministry. And then, in the summer of 1914, a 19-year-old Bosnian Serb ran up to a car carrying Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke of Austria. He fired a pistol, striking Ferdinand in the neck, and then he shot the Archduke's wife. What followed was a frenzy. Within a month, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had declared war against Serbia, and the major European powers squared off in their various alliances, and the Great War had begun. Sopwith's greatest contribution was the Sopwith Camel, a biplane fighter that arrived in 1917 on the Western Front in France. The Camel was the World War I equivalent of the Spitfire in terms of its performance and versatility. Donald Healy cut his apprenticeship short to join the Royal Flying Corps, and he entered pilot training. He even survived being shot down by friendly fire on a nighttime bombing mission. In fact, he had a series of crashes and was injured badly enough that he could no longer fly. Later, he was diagnosed with an inner ear disorder that may have been having subtle effects on his piloting abilities. And those early aircraft he was flying were notoriously difficult, even for the best-trained pilots. Before the war was over, Healy made his way back to Cornwall and kept up on his studies, specifically in automotive engineering. Technology had made significant leaps during the war, and Healy stayed at the forefront of automotive development. He also opened a garage in his hometown, eventually preparing competition cars. But apparently that wasn't enough. Because exposure to the Brooklyn's racing circuit and the exhilaration of power and speed he'd experienced in aviation was too strong. So in the late 1920s, Healy got into motor racing, eventually driving in the Monte Carlo Rally, which he won in 1931. He was thoroughly in love with the competition side of motor cars. His success as a driver and his engineering skill drew the attention of the auto industry. First, he took a job with the Riley Motor Car Company. And then, in 1933, he became the experimental projects manager for Triumph Motor Cars. Now, Triumph was already racing for many years, but they wanted to be more competitive against European makes, particularly in Alpine rally events. So Healy was charged with producing an engine that could match the superb Alfa Romeo 8C 2.3 liter straight 8. He promptly went out and bought an Alfa, and work began to engineer a mirror image of it for Triumph. And as unthinkable as it might be in today's cutthroat automotive industry, Healy actually traveled to Italy and met with Alpha's brilliant chief designer, Vittorio Iano. According to Healy himself, Iano and his team were flattered that Triumph wanted to design their new engine after the Alpha Straight 8. And whether this was genuine sentiment or 
just a grace between gentlemen. Nevertheless, they had a valuable exchange on the technical details. There was talk of a joint project between the two companies, but that never happened. Still, Healy returned to Coventry and commenced work on a new engine, and in only six months, they had a working twin-cam supercharged straight-eight. It went into a cycle-fendered roadster they called the Dolomite, in a nod to the Italian mountain range. Like its Alfa Romeo twin, the Dolomite straight-eight was a striking piece of machinery, stretching out under a long bonnet, looking much like an aero engine, with its individual exhaust headers and many fine details. Only three Dolomite prototypes were built, one of which was destroyed in a collision with a train during the 1935 Monte Carlo rally. And who was behind the wheel but Donald Healy? The crash happened in a heavy fog, and the only thing that saved Healy and his co-driver was that he heard a train whistle at the last moment. But he didn't recognize it as a train whistle. Thinking that the supercharger had been starved of oil and was losing its bearings, he hit the brakes just as the car's nose crossed in front of the train. The front end was absolutely demolished, and of course, there was no hope of finishing the rally, and both men escaped barely. The Dolomite prototypes were definitely promising, but by the late 1930s, Triumph was in financial trouble, so in July of 1939, the company was liquidated. And then, in September, the Nazis invaded Poland, and the world spun out of control once again. Donald Healy again joined the war effort, accepting a commission in the Royal Air Force Reserves as a part-time liaison officer. Meanwhile, his full-time job was at Humber on their armored vehicle design staff. But he was increasingly looking ahead to the war's end. Triumph was mounting a comeback, but Healy was on to his own ambitions, having gained tremendous experience in motorsport and engineering over a 20-year period. And he'd built close relationships throughout the automobile industry. So in 1945, he founded the Donald Healy Motor Company. And for the next seven years, a string of small production models were released. The first Healy's were all fairly swoopy and curvaceous, but their styling made them immediately anachronistic. The one styling cue from those early cars that managed to last into later cars was their shield-shaped front grille, and I'll tell you more about that later. Now, Healy typically had their own chassis and front suspension design, to which they added engines, gearboxes, and rear axles sourced from larger manufacturers mostly from the Riley Motor Car Company, which had a sporting 2.4-liter twin-cam engine with a cross-flow head. The early Healy cars were capable of 100 miles per hour, which was still a benchmark in those days. Once the chassis were completed, Healy would ship them to various coach builders to be fitted with aluminum bodywork. Most of the cars became roadsters or coupes, and with the entire post-war British economy focusing on export, Healy wisely began to market his cars in the United States. Donald Healy's son Jeff joined his father's company in 1949, and the two of them took a cross-country promotional tour in a Healy Westland Roadster, and father and son immediately fell in love with the vast expanses of highway meeting the broad horizon from Texas to California. Encountering every weather condition along the road made their journey a proving ground for the car and it gave Donald Healy an up-close and personal look at the market potential. 
He noted that young gearheads in the Southern California hot rod scene after the war would graduate to become sports car buyers in the coming years. Also in 1949, a true competition model called the Silverstone came along, with a streamlined body, cut-down doors, and pontoon cycle fenders. Most had their headlights mounted behind the grill for an even racier appearance. They almost looked like a three-quarter scale Grand Prix car of the time. Healy was able to price it under 1,000 pounds to avoid triggering a higher sales tax. The Silverstone sold reasonably well, and it proved to be successful in competition. At least three Healy Silverstones were purchased by wealthy Palm Beach sportsman and racer Briggs Cunningham, who installed one of Cadillac's new overhead valve 331 cubic inch V8s. The 331 had immediately become the go-to power plant for engine swaps in hot rods and competition specials. After learning about Cunningham's engine swap, Healy and son Jeff managed to get their hands on one themselves, and they were thrilled about how the Cadillac power transformed the lightweight Silverstone. By the way, neither Cunningham nor Healy were the first to see the advantage of having a big American V8 under the hood of a nimble European sports car. That honor belongs to Sidney Allard, another English race driver and car builder whose career in many ways paralleled Donald Healy's. Allard had been swapping Ford V8s into his cars since the 1930s. Remember, this was two decades before Carroll Shelby made his deal with Ford and AC cars to build the Cobra. The 1949 Allard J2 was usually delivered with a Ford or Mercury flathead V8, but many were exported to the United States and quickly converted to the Cadillac 331 with its overhead valves and aluminum heads. And by the way, the J2 bears a striking resemblance to the Healy Silverstone, even down to the dimensions and weight. But the similarities are probably due more to the general trend of post-war racing car design than to intentional imitation. But back to Donald Healy and his new ambitions for greater performance. He knew that the 2.4-liter Riley twin cam had reached its limits. So after seeing what Cunningham had done, Healy's plan was to purchase a stock of Cadillac engines. In December 1949, he booked passage to New York on the Queen Elizabeth. And it was on that voyage that a chance meeting led to Healy's biggest venture yet. Because George Mason, the chairman of Nash Kelvinator, was also on board. Okay, I need to do a little more backstory here. The Nash Motor Company had merged with the Kelvinator Corporation in the late 1930s. Nash built reliable but decidedly unsexy passenger cars in Kenosha, Wisconsin, while Kelvinator was a refrigeration pioneer. And in the early 1950s, Nash merged with Hudson, creating the American Motors Corporation. So that gives you an idea of the lineage. Anyway, their chairman, George Mason, was a portly man, a sort of cigar-chomping captain of industry, and he knew everyone in the car business. Mason was on the deck of the Queen Elizabeth taking photos when Donald Healy noticed him. Now, Healy was also a photographer, and he struck up a conversation. And the talk later turned to the car business. Mason was intrigued by Healy's plan to put a Cadillac V8 in his little sports cars. And he told him that if the deal with Cadillac didn't work out, they should talk about doing a project together. Mason was actually a true car guy, and he was a keen observer of what the Europeans had been doing. In fact, he was one of the earliest advocates for a more compact car for the U.S. market. But he worried about the future of Nash, because after the war, competition from the big three automakers was more intense than ever. The whole U.S. auto industry was booming, and a pricing war was imminent. 
Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors could afford to undercut Nash and the other smaller companies like Studebaker, Hudson, and Packard. Throughout the 1950s, in fact, this grim reality of economics caused these little automakers to join forces. Nash had tried to innovate with streamlined bodies, but they ended up looking dated, especially compared to the direction that General Motors had taken. What Mason needed was a loss leader, something exciting, a glamorous sports car that could pull people into the dealerships and help sell his reliable but frumpy Nash bathtub sedans. In fact, he was returning from Italy after a meeting with the Italian coach builder Battista Pininfarina when he met Donald Healy on the deck of the Queen Elizabeth. Once in Detroit, Donald Healy met with Ed Cole, who was Cadillac's chief engineer and the man who led the development of the 331 V8. It was a friendly meeting, and both men were crazy about high performance. But in the end, the news wasn't good because Cole had to confess that Cadillac was barely meeting their own production demands and couldn't spare any engines. Healy was disappointed, but before he left Detroit, he got in touch with George Mason in Kenosha. What followed was a planning session over dinner and drinks for a new international sports car, the Nash Healy. And Mason would bankroll the project. The car would have an English chassis, American running gear, and an aluminum body of Healy's design. The Nash Straight Six was 115 horsepower, far less than the 331 Caddy, but still far better than the Riley 4, and with plenty of engineering and parts support. From December of 1949 to the spring of 1950, Healy was furiously busy back at the factory in Warwick getting the prototype ready. It was tuned for racing with an aluminum head and twin SU carburetors. The car was entered in the 24-hour Le Mans race and finished fourth overall and third in its class behind a pair of Taubo Lagos and, ironically, a Cadillac-powered Allard J2, co-driven by Sidney Allard himself. Way back in 10th and 11th place were Briggs Cunningham's Cadillac entries. One was a factory-bodied Coupe de Ville, and the other was a slab-sided special the French had nicknamed Le Monster an ugly but ambitious entry, and one of the most famous American cars ever to challenge European circuits. The production version of the Nash Healey was ready in 1951, but with a sticker price $700 higher than the Jaguar XK120, sales were disappointing at just over 100 units. And just after the car debuted, Healey learned that George Mason had entered an agreement with Pininfarina to produce an entirely restyled body for the car. The final result was well-received by the motoring press, but the coachwork was now steel rather than aluminum, so it also gained weight and it became even more expensive. In any event, the Nash Healey Venture lasted four years, but only managed to produce just over 500 units, both in Roadster and hardtop coupe versions. The complexity of building a car with an English chassis, American running gear, and an Italian body was just too much to make it work financially. But the Nash partnership had been enough to keep the Healy company out of bankruptcy and allow Donald Healy to begin working on his biggest endeavor yet. It was to be a pure sports car. A top speed of over 100 miles per hour, a stunning shape, 
and as sporting as anything coming from the continent. Worthy of entry in any racing event in Europe. It would fit the market gap between the affordable but aging MG T-Series and the pricey Jaguar XK120. And Healy wisely set his sights on the U.S. market. Now he just needed to find the right powertrain to build it around. The answer to that question was waiting for him just a short drive from his office, about 30 minutes away at the Austin Motor Company in Longbridge, because Austin had a problem they called the A90 Atlantic, a well-engineered little car with the sex appeal of a garden slug. It too was built for the American market, but its bathtub styling, triple headlights, teardrop front fenders, and excess of chrome added up to a visual disaster. So the car was a flop. Still, the A90's 2.6-liter four-cylinder had just the right specifications for Donald Healy. So when he inquired about purchasing a supply of engines, Austin's chairman, Leonard Lord, was only too happy to oblige. In fact, he said Healy could have gearboxes, axles, and anything else he might need. The deal was struck and design work began around the Austin mechanicals. Heading up chassis development was a young engineer named Barry Bilby, who'd been with the company since 1946. He came up with a fully boxed ladder-designed chassis with independent front suspension on coil springs and rear leaf springs and solid rear axle. The firewall and floor panels were welded to the chassis, giving it a stiffness that was lacking in many sports cars. And that was a trick that the Healy engineers had learned from Pininfarina. The bodywork was styled by a young engineer named Jerry Coker. And although he was not a stylist, Coker nevertheless managed to create one of the most timeless designs in sports car history. It had a very short front overhang, a long hood, and a pinched waist that finished with a short teardrop rear end. The seats were just ahead of the rear axle. The shape was decidedly Italian in character, with none of the pretense of the early post-war Heelys. In fact, it's one of the most seductive shapes in sports car history made even better by a brilliant folding windscreen that cleverly slides forward to flatten out and create an uninterrupted visual excitement. Initially, Jerry Coker gave it a signature Healy shield-shaped grille, just as the earlier cars had after the war. But both Coker and Donald Healy decided it was too tall and too narrow, so at the last possible moment, the grille was widened and the angles were softened. High-speed testing of the prototype was conducted in Belgium with excellent results, running triple-digit speeds and thereby giving the car its name, the Healy 100. And yet, in spite of this success, Donald Healy might well have been in the most unsettled state of mind of his career. Because disappointments over the Nash partnership, as well as the short development timeline of this new car, had caused tremendous pressure and shaken his confidence. If the car failed, it would mean financial ruin. And he still didn't care for the front end, especially the grille. Days after returning from testing in Belgium, the car was due to be shipped to London for the 1952 Earl's Court Motor Show. But Healy decided against it. Fortunately, his employees did it anyway, led by senior engineer Roger Menadou and Jeff Healy. And the Healy 100 was trucked into London with no time to spare. 
Even so, the boss was so unsure about the front of the car that he ordered it to be displayed facing a wall and concealed with potted plants. It didn't stay that way for very long, though, because the curvy roadster painted in a gleaming, pale metallic blue struck the crowds like a bolt of lightning. It was an instant hit, and people clamored to order their very own on the spot. Even other car companies approached Healy to pitch a partnership deal. But the most influential man in the room, Leonard Lord, had the ace of aces up his sleeve. Because just seven months earlier, a massive change had taken place in the car industry. The two biggest manufacturers, Austin and Morris, had merged to become the British Motor Corporation, essentially the General Motors of Britain, and Leonard Lord was chairman of BMC. Lord was already supplying Healy with the mechanicals, but the excitement over the show car convinced him it was going to be a smash hit, and BMC needed an exciting sports car in their stable, especially after the embarrassment of the A90 Atlantic. And so, during the Earl's Court show, a meeting was taken in Lord Suite at the Dorchester Hotel. The reality was that both men knew Healy was never going to be able to meet this demand on his own. The Healy Motor Company estimated it could build 20 cars a week at best. Len Lord said that BMC could build 200 cars a week, and Donald Healy would retain his independence in design and development. He would also get coveted access to Austin's worldwide network of distributors, especially in America. Not only that, but BMC would fund Healy's racing ambitions, and the proposed term of the partnership was incredibly optimistic. 20 years. And so it was done. No team of lawyers, no shareholders meeting, just a deal done between two men who knew exactly what they had to gain from each other. It demonstrated a supreme confidence in Healy's vision and his experience and the quality of his team, and an appreciation for the kind of pure design that was missing in a huge conglomerate like BMC. The Healy team had a lot of freedom to design what they wanted, and they didn't have to answer to a large corporate board. Before the end of the Earl's Court show, Jerry Coker had even designed and struck a new badge for the car a pair of wings flanking the new name emblazoned in crimson enamel, Austin Healey. The motoring press and the public went crazy for the Austin Healey 100, and it was a winner from the start. That's not to say there weren't growing pains. The contrast between a small manufacturer with a series of workshop sheds and one that could snap its corporate fingers at the entire British economy was pretty stark. Decisions and actions at Healey were a matter of a few people just making it happen. Whereas at BMC and the Austin plant, layers of union bosses and management types rose from the factory floor like a great Yorkshire pudding. In fact, the nickname for the Austin headquarters was the Kremlin. Meanwhile, keeping the United States market firmly in his sights and taking full advantage of Austin's corporate backing, Donald Healy embarked on an ambitious publicity campaign, taking a number of specially prepared cars to Bonneville Salt Flats. In 1953, he drove a heavily tuned Austin Healy 100 there, making 142 miles per hour in the flying mile. And he hired other drivers, including Carroll Shelby, who was still an amateur but on the verge of his professional racing career. During that trip, the Healy team set 83 separate records in the Utah desert. And the next year, Healy returned to Utah with a supercharged, fully enclosed, streamlined special. 
He was hoping to make an official two-way timed speed average of 200 miles per hour. The Streamliner had a bubble canopy, teardrop profile, and a tapering wedge tail, and a vertical dorsal fin. Jerry Coker had added that stabilizer not for function, but because he felt the car needed a little dressing up. Some people on the Healy team were worried that it might catch the wind and push the car off course. So the fin was reduced in size, but it stayed. Healy did see 200 miles per hour on one run, but fell just short on the return run for a two-way average of 192.74 miles per hour. Still, Healy's efforts on the salt were a success, and the resulting momentum produced the Healy Special Test Cars, all focused on competition and all built at Healy's Warwick shops. With the development of a cross-flow cylinder head, bigger valves, and improved cooling, the car was made lighter with an aluminum alloy body and raced at Sebring in 1954. And despite some mechanical trouble, it finished third. With that respectable first showing, Healy built 50 special cars dubbed the 100S for Sebring, all in the American racing colors of white and blue. In a brilliant marketing ploy, the 100S was meant to be sold only to sportsman types who were intent on racing them, which would promote the Austin Healy brand to sports car fans at circuits all over the world. The 100S also featured four-piston Dunlop brakes, a deleted overdrive, a special oval grille, a cut-down Perspex windscreen, bonnet louvers, a leather bonnet strap, and other details that made the cars comply with FIA race-sanctioning requirements of the time. For the serious buyer who didn't want to race but still wanted more performance, Healy offered the 100M. It amounted to what they called the Le Mans kit which was a collection of bolt-on performance parts you could specify when ordering a car or have installed at a dealer, or even do it yourself. Like so many first-generation cars that capture the imagination, the Austin Healey 100 was ultimately too good to last. As focused as he was on a pure sports car, Donald Healy couldn't hold back the sheer mass of corporate decision-making that seems to be inevitable in the automotive industry. First, BMC needed to rationalize its engine manufacturing across its brands. So the next Austin Healy was slated for a six-cylinder engine. Not necessarily a bad thing at the outset, but it meant that changes to the front sheet metal were required, and it increased the car's weight. Next came seating for four instead of two and then substantial changes to the body, more creature comforts, and eventually roll-up windows and such. All of these changes culminated in the Austin Healey 3000, which was released in 1959. Even still, there was fierce competition, some of it from inside BMC, as Healey was competing with the MGA. In 1958, a tiny new sports car had been released, the Austin Healey Sprite, which was a success in its own right. But meanwhile, the so-called Big Healy continued to gain weight, and eventually it struggled to meet new regulatory requirements, even as it faced the shortcomings of an aging chassis and suspension design. That's not to say it wasn't highly successful. The 3000 was a very popular club racer and rally car, but by 1967 the car had reached the end of a remarkable run. Amid labor strife, a changing market, and corporate reorganization, the Austin Healey was discontinued by BMC. Donald Healey was undeterred. 
and he entered into a new sports car project with the Jensen Company. The deal made sense to all parties involved, especially since Jensen had taken a financial hit and in San Francisco, one of Healy's closest friends also wanted to see a replacement for the 3000. His name was Shell Cavalli, the most successful British car dealer in America. He'd begun selling MGTCs in 1948, almost by accident. And during the 50s and 60s, he'd built his personal automotive empire. Cavalli managed to purchase the ailing Jensen Company, and they embarked on this new car, the Jensen Healy. The car began as a concept called the X500, which was actually rendered as a full-size model. But the styling was a victim of that awkward transitional period of the late 60s, when wedgie and geometric lines often didn't resonate in a full design. And besides the uninspiring appearance of the car, there was ongoing labor strife at Jensen, the constraints of regulatory compliance, and the challenge of keeping costs down to hit their price point. But the worst problem was the agreement to purchase a new Lotus 2-liter engine, the 907. And this meant that Jensen was essentially funding the development of this engine. And although it performed well, it proved to be totally unreliable. And it earned the Jensen Healy a bad reputation immediately. Just over 10,000 of these cars were built before production ended in 1976. And not without a great deal of effort to try to fix things before they finally killed it. Both Cavalli and Healy later admitted that the car was a disaster of mediocrity, and Donald Healy confessed he never really felt the pride he enjoyed in the original Big Healy's. Throughout the 1970s and early 80s, Donald Healy tried many times to make a comeback. But the auto industry had changed dramatically since the day that he made that handshake agreement with Len Lord at the Dorchester Hotel. In his later years, Healy was the guest of honor at numerous Austin Healy regional and national meets in the United States, and he enjoyed the admiration of fans at club events anywhere he went. Donald Healy died in 1988. During his lifetime, he helped write the book on 20th century motorsport and sports car design. The Austin Healey 100 and 3000 became benchmarks for generations of British roadster lovers, and they're still inspiring designers today. Full of character, performance, they're fantastic little cars. That's it for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave me a five-star review. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.